What is up? Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. This week's guest is Dave Scalia. Dave is a Brooklyn-based professional drummer, producer, and songwriter. For the last seven years, he's been playing with L. King, an amazing artist. But throughout his career, he's also worked with White Rabbits, Don Richard, Theo Katzman, Miranda Lambert, Dirk Bentley, and many more. I also skipped a bunch that I couldn't pronounce, but check out the links in the show notes for more affiliations. He's incredible and nuanced, yet very elastic with his playing, and I just love his style, and I was extremely excited to get him on the show. So please go check him out, but for the time being, sit back, relax, and snag some great insight from a real bona fide musician. Here are the five-ish records that shaped Dave Scalia into the drummer he is today. Cheers. So I do want to ask, Mike Robinson was talking to me and he said, hey man, you have to ask Dave about his dad's drum collection. So can you, Mm -hmm. (laughs) just to get it out of the way, can we just talk about that? And then we'll get into you. (laughs) Yeah, 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 sure. Um, I mean, I was probably going to talk about it anyway. Okay. Um, I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. I was born there and I grew up there and my dad happens to be a drummer and a drum collector. He's 77, 78. I think he'll be 78 in a few months. But yeah, he he played in bands in his 20s professionally and played, you know, around the Midwest and 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 did the thing. Later had a had a different career, but when when he grew up, he grew up in Rockford, Illinois, and I think the story, the fable is that like his mom and dad got him a drum set but maybe had to take it back or they didn't get the full drum set. I don't know, something that stuck with him and so when he got to the point in the mid 80s um after he already had a different profession as an as an engineer he he's always loved vintage drums so he started basically collecting in the mid 80s right around when i was born and somehow just amassed these drums so when i became kind of cognizant of what was going on i I didn't even really pay that much attention to it but he eventually got up to a point of you know over 100 drum sets um in his vintage drum collection full drum sets and we're talking nothing really nothing beyond this certain point in the 70s he had some vista lights he doesn't have any vista lights anymore uh ludwig vista lights but um i think those were he's got some blue olive badge but nothing in the 80s there's like this hard cutoff so he's got you know wfl ludwig gretsch rogers um slingerland you know the big american drum companies and symbols too old k's old a's it's still a very strange thing to realize i mean i just grew up with i grew up playing on these drum sets and i still don't really fully comprehend how how special that was i was really lucky i'm basically the most spoiled uh drummer do you ever take those kits out or is he like no they stay in the basement they no he's he's actually he's very generous about it and um right now in new york i have a um, round badge gretch and a club date uh mid to late 60s i forgot what the serial number maybe 300,000 so pro- probably like a late 60s um club date gold sparkle club date and a couple snares um a couple snares floating around and some symbols floating around too some old days and parakeet hi hats so i've got some things and i tend not to take those out on tour i, I really like cnc a lot and actually cardwell 
Bill has known my dad through the vintage drum community for like a really long time. And then Jake, his son reached out to me when I played in a band called white rabbits uh, years ago. And like, we made this connection like, Oh, our dads have known each other for 25 years. Well, <laughs> do you want to play these drums? I'm like, yeah, I love them. And I feel like the the spirit of vintage drums is in there and it's a family vibe. So I, I, I really like using those for the road and, and sessions too. But um, I feel like I get the vintage thing, but I don't have to kind of be like, freaked out when Tommy might <laughs> you know, who our, our our mutual friend Tommy might something might happen to it on the road and I get freaked out because it's my dad's you know yeah it's the hardware of the vintage stuff that scares me it's not the shells yeah totally those things hold up but yeah when you have those those uh flat base Ludwig stands and you're playing yes. and you, you hit a big crash something might happen you know this begs the question, and I'll word it mm -hmm. as uh, respectfully as possible. When the day comes that you do inherit all these drums, what mm -hmm. is what is your plan with them? Um, well, yeah. So the, the update, not to disappoint everybody, but the update is, you know, he's he's kind of whittled down the collection a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think we're down to maybe in the 50s maybe 40s or 50s which sounds insane barely to any say. at this point <laughs> <laughs> right yeah you can practically fit them in a in a in a closet um so he's whittled them down a bit and we, we always have those kind of strange and awkward conversations not always but occasionally we'll have these conversations about it um and yeah i mean at some point i'll probably have some drums i'm not really sure what I mean, I know what I'd like to do with him. I thought about it. He's been very open with me. We talk about drums all the time. And he, I mean, first of all, he's, when we get onto the influences, I'll talk about him and, and some of the music things, but I mean, he's a great drummer himself. And he's really kind of the first person that I saw playing drums. And he's got an awesome taste in music. And he knows a ton about vintage drums. I mean, it is just encyclopedic and it's, it's really impressive. But one of the things that I told him when he consults with me, he's like, Oh, should I, you know, should I sell this kit? Like, I don't know when I'm torn, what should I do? I've always just been like, look, I love these things, but I love the sound of them. And I love the spirit of them being, you know, revitalized. I want them to be on records. I want them to be playing, played at, at shows or, um, you know, special occasions or whatever. And so I'm all about the sound profile. I'm like, look, if you've got like, like a radio King snare drum, that is this, you know, certain amount of plies and it's the certain depth and all, all these, all these specifications are the same. If you have something that's, it's just cosmetic that the finish is different. I don't care about that stuff because the cosmetic thing for all instruments, but particularly drums can become very, that's where the collectors go crazy. Sometimes you get these catalog perfect kits and it's like, well, I've got the, you know, I've got the red sparkle. I got the blue sparkle. I got this wrap and everything. And I'm like, look, if the sound profile is basically there and we've got a wide thing. That's what I'm really excited about because um, I do a lot of recording. I've got a studio in Brooklyn. Um, and I, I, I love the, I love just recording these things because above all else, they're beautiful instruments and they sound amazing. And they represented kind of like a golden age in, in American instrument production and in, a, in American music. But if it's something that's like, you, it's not really a player's kit or you've got eight of the same matching thing. I'm like, all right, get rid of seven of them. Maybe keep the coolest color. Sure. <laughs> so that's where I'm at. Well, let's get into your five. So go, talking about those, what was your mindset when compartmentalizing the five choices that we're going to talk about today? It's really hard. I'm sure I'm kind of 
echoing what a lot of friends and and guests of the show um, have said. But at first I was like, oh yeah, man, this is, I mean, this is, I mean, it's a, it's fun above all else, but then there's this kind of daunting point where you're like, oh my God, I'm going to leave out some stuff and then I'm going to go back and be freaked out and, (laughs) and whatever. Um, I, I really, I really like the history of drumming a lot. And I really feel like music of the sixties and seventies, partially because of this drum collection that I grew up with and uh, my, my family's musical influence really were kind of, there's this, this fertile time where I really got into music and drumming. And I think that I'm trying to represent that a little bit more. It's skewed more towards music of the sixties and seventies records of the sixties and seventies more than music that has influenced me a lot recently. And I think I just, I like to go back to the roots because like, okay, well, if, if this, you know, if these drummers were doing this in the sixties, then influence this guy, then influence this person. Then, and then eventually you get to, to Brian Blade or eventually you get to mm-hmm. Jim Keltner or whatever. Yep. So I kind of had that approach and these records were also, I remember these kind of moments where I had epiphanies where I was like, Oh my God, this is, if I could sound like this or a fraction like this, I would give my limb for, for it. So all of them are kind of, represent maybe parts of my body that I would give to sound <laughs> even <laughs> that's a the fraction right of the good. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of my approach. They're a little bit older um, examples of records, but they, I, I was, was exposed to them early, luckily because of the family I grew up in mostly. Sure. And before we talk about your first one, I've been asking a lot of guests this lately. So when you sit behind a kit, it's a new kit. And just to get comfortable behind the kit, maybe some drummers are watching. What's the first beat you play? The first thing you do? My first instinct most of the time is to play like one of two beats. And that's just like probably a somewhere around like an 80 to 100 BPM ish soul kind of groove where it's just basically like one in three in the bass drum or one, you know, maybe one syncopated bass drum, but basically just laying, laying something down. Cause my hope is that I can show people like that. I know how to play the instrument by playing the simplest thing. And it's so groovy that people like, like almost like a Steve Jordan effect sure. or a or Bernard Gadsden Purdy or, effect yeah. or Gadsden or, uh, or Steve Gad effect where you're just like, you could play, you know, a Gadsden 16th note hi-hat thing and and everybody stops what they're doing almost more so than somebody that's playing all the licks. So 100%. I t- tend to go to those. The Gadsden thing always comes up because it kind of gets my right hand woken up and it you get a little bit of, you know, technique coming out with the right hand. But basically, if I can play something, a basic, simple rock or soul groove and get people's attention, the tone is amazing. The drums are... I, I, tweaked all the the lugs did any dampening i need to do all the equipment sounds good and i play it and it feels good sometimes i fail maybe i'll look maybe look out a corner of my eye and some <laughs> old some old crew guy doesn't care but <laughs> that's my hope yeah. yeah yeah all right so number one and this is this i love this because when we first started this format me and chris did our own little top five and there was a certain flam hit on this song that was one in my top five but the album is help the release year is 1965. The artist is The Beatles. The song choice is Ticket to Ride. 
And the drummer, of course, is Ringo Starr. So you can just talk about it a little bit and then we'll play a little bit of Ticket to Ride. Yeah, this, I first got exposed to this song actually not from the the actual help record but it was from those two double cds the red and blue double cds that apple put out Mm -hmm. so you know i mean later on i I dug deep into the actual record help and and um all its tracks but i i took it from my brother and we were on a road trip and i just listened to that record constantly both of them all four of the cds and Ticket to Ride just struck me particularly, and I think it's a really good example. And now apparently Paul came up with the idea. I mean, there's we could oh. talk for hours about all the the different, like the special Beatles uh, little nuggets. Mm-hmm. But um what is awesome about it is that is that flam, that part and and um on on the rack tom. But it's what's so cool about it is that I feel like I can hear Ringo evolving in real time with the song because that that verse a section he plays that like it's like the second part of the triplet maybe but then the and the chorus happens the groove changes then it comes back to the verse again and then he changes it changes it up and it kind of like picks the song up it's so cool because it's it's like it's not through composed but it's not like it's it's evolving i feel like and apparently it was done in maybe i think two takes i think this is from what i've read this is one of the first times that the beatles actually started to record structurally where basics were done and then they overdubbed before that they were doing everybody playing at once you know in the room together so here you have ringo coming in and kind of nailing it and it's not it's not metronomic it feels amazing. The tempos are fluctuating, but you never think about it. Like you want to move to it. It's a, it's a really brilliant kind of different part, but it grooves and the song evolves. And I just feel like I can hear Ringo's spirit, but also he nailed the take and it's so unique. And every, like to play this exactly how he played it is just like, I don't think anybody can really do it. Mm -hmm. The drums sound great. The take is great. It feels good. It's unique. It lets, the other instruments shine. It references the other instruments and the vocal lines. I mean, it's just, it's just a brilliant example of Ringo's um, ability to play to the song. He was a great session drummer. He's a great live drummer. He's really one of my favorite drummers. And when I heard this song and the Help record, and also that compilation, the the Red um, Apple compilation, it just it was just infectious. It really got me into to playing drums and wanting to to be to be a drummer. She don't care. I don't know why she's riding so high. 
like the tambourine starts like a measure before to kind of like amp you up. Exactly. Now it's straight, picks it up, not doing the triplet thing. Is he doing unison? Da, 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 like three little hits on, I don't know. I think he's doing like, I don't really know. And it's it sounds like it's kind of almost a roll between like either the rack or the floor and the snare. Uh, or maybe he tried to do it unison and the hands just didn't kind of, I don't know. But it's so, to me, that's so hip because it's just like, when's the last time we've heard a Phil exactly like that? I mean, it's just, it's, just, it's, it's really unique to me. Was that a blast beat? <laughs> I think it was like a fraction of a blast beat. Wow. Apparently John said that this was like the first um heavy metal song or something or that that it was like kind of early birth which um is an interesting observation. I, um I, I really don't have an opinion as to whether that's a yes or no, but it's those little fills are so hip. The, the rolls on the tom, and then one of the times he just doesn't do a fill, and then you've got that fill, and it, it's just really kind of almost through composed and unique, mm -hmm. still groovy, just just an awesome drum tune. Have you ever gotten a chance to see Ringo's All Star Band? I have not. Um, I did. I did see Paul at Austin City Limits, mm. probably. Four or five years ago, Abe Laboreal was just unbelievable drumming and singing those high harmonies. That is probably one of the best shows I've ever seen. Just being, you know, a pretty big Beatles fan, and and this this record and that and other Beatles records were really kind of the first things that that got me into to music because I stole it from my brother. <sighs> and so seeing him live was just like just this moment. But I never I never saw Ringo's band. He's still doing it. They do a different tour every year. So even if you see it one time, the next time he comes through, it's a whole different crew of people. I recommend, I did see him maybe 10 years ago and it was it was amazing. He's usually the front man. If people don't know, he brings out different lead singers and guitarists from other bands and gives them the chance to sing those songs in front of a big audience. And then towards the end, Ringo goes back and plays some songs on the kit. Hey y'all, I wanted to, <laughs> I can't say, I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely, it's loud, and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston actually, this is why it's called the Ocean Patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his his you know where he makes all of his drums, 
it was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with the drum. And it was, it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful. And he actually let me use it on an Eve 6 tour and I didn't keep it. And I regretted it ever since then, just because I was trying to pinch pennies at the time. And I just kept thinking about it. And so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums. So the Ocean Patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, check it out, reach out to me, go to Vessel Drum Co. The Instagram's just at Vessel Drum Co and check it out. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Sounds great. Bye. But uh, all right, let's go on the number two. And so the album cool. is, it's on two two releases, uh, probably more than that. But the ones you put down is the Funky Drummer single or um, from the In the Jungle Groove 1986 compilation. And yeah, the Funky Drummer. So the release here is 1970. The drummer is Clyde Stubblefield. So take it away and then we'll listen to it at about 520 is when the drum break is. I'm not sure what part yeah. of the song you want to listen to, but. Yeah, that, that, that break is definitely the thing Mm -hmm. um man this this tune you know both both the single release and then the compilation just really influential for me um growing up in madison you know not only did i have like kind of the 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 family you know drum collection and musical influences but clyde stubblefield although not born in madison lived most of his life in madison wisconsin so i got to see him play i mean he had I don't know if he necessarily had weekly gigs, but he played at a club downtown and I got to see him play. I got to meet him a bunch of times, stupidly did not take lessons with him. It actually kind of haunts me that I didn't do it. But I mean, it was a thing that people in the Madison music scene were just like, you know, Clyde Stubblefield. He's, he's a Madisonian. Like he's here, he plays, he's part, he's part of the community. So it was, I would have been exposed to him even if I didn't live there, but there's a special kind of um, connection that I've had. And I got exposed to the music that he made with James Brown at an early age. And this tune, trying to pick one that he played on is difficult, but this one, I mean, just the influence of it just can't be understated. And what actually, when I moved to New York 13 years ago, the, the first gig that I had in town was with Fred Thomas, the one of James Brown's bass players. And it was just this full circle thing with me. And it was, and it was really cool. I mean, that drum break, most sampled drum break kind of changed funk and soul music at that moment. It's improvised. You know, I've, I've heard kind of different stories about it, but apparently they're playing Cold Sweat and then, or jamming on a riff, and then James Brown wanted a drum break and played this drum break, and it impressed him so much that that he like he's like, okay, this song's called The Funky Drummer. And, you know, to impress somebody notoriously very hard to impress as James Brown to do that, to get a song named after you to kind of revolutionize drumming funk and soul. And then like actually kind of like change in the eighties later on in the eighties, hip hop. I mean, what it's like kind of, if you have to go back and and choose profound drumming moments in history, I mean, this has got to be one of them. And I'm so lucky that I got exposed to it at an early age and got to hear Clyde got to have some conversations with him and um, playing those 16th note, 16th notes at that tempo consistently. And that groovy is awesome. The syncopation with the left hand, the ghost notes. I mean, everything about it is just, I still try to play this groove and it's just like, it's a lifelong thing. 
20 years from now, I'll be trying to play this as good as him. And I won't, it's just this, this thing that I'll be chasing for my entire career. But um, this is just really one of the tunes. And that compilation record is just chock full of just all great Jabo and Clyde tracks. Mm -hmm. So, all right, here we go. Here's uh, the funky drummer drum break. it's so it's so groovy and so innovative and and there's some there's some cool live youtube clips of them playing um and you know uh, of james brown playing and clyde clyde has like a you know a break and he he plays everything really differently and they 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 played a lot of the tunes faster i mean the live at the apollo i don't think clyde was on that but the live at the apollo record i mean everything was like way faster and so I, i you know a lot of that stuff is just, it was just a moment in time in the studio and Clyde played something that he felt it was kind of a riff and a groove and then people fell in and then, you know, it just, it just changed and put a, a, a huge mark on music and drumming. It's really cool. Yeah. I've seen some videos where he plays that break on the ride where he's just like almost crashing exactly. on it the whole time. Yeah. Well, how was it playing with James Brown's bass player? What was, <laughs> how was that? It, Man, it was, it was a trip. I mean, I'm, I'm, it was probably a few weeks after I literally drove my car out from Indiana, having gone to music school out there, got a friend of mine hooked me up with a gig playing with Fred and we went to his basement in Bed-Stuy and rehearsed the tunes. And it was just this crazy experience, man. I was, I was incredibly nervous and, and, the, and the gig happened and I, you know, it was just, it was just kind of a blur. I was just like, oh my God, I'm, I'm playing in New York and this is this guy played with James Brown and just like, uh, but it was really cool. And we had some awesome conversations and I, I just tried to soak up as much as I can and sure. or as much as I could at, at the time. And, but I was, yeah, I was, I was a little, probably a little quiet at the time, just being like, <laughs> oh, thank, thank you. How did I do? You know, yeah. it's a good drummer. Didn't <laughs> talk cool. much though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So number three, the album is four and more. The release here is 1966. The artist is Miles Davis. 
the song choice. And again, I say this every episode, I force people to pick a song, not that this is necessarily, you know, the best one on the record or the one just you, I, I, I made you pick one song. So this is the song that I made you choose seven steps okay. to heaven and the drummers, Tony Williams. And maybe this is the song you would choose anyways, but just, uh, take it away. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of, uh, I'm not sure how that concert went down. It seems like there are maybe two sets or something, but, um, uh, I mean, I loved the record seven steps to, to heaven as well. And the solo on that is really awesome. I remember transcribing it in college and playing it, trying to play it like him. Um, yeah, I think I, I just, I love the form of this tune and I like the song. It's, it's, it's a lyrical and cool. I mean, so is walking, but it's, it, I mean, they play it way up on this. And I remember hearing this record for the first time in college really early on in college, I went to, to jazz school. <laughs> and why do you laugh on that? Just, just cause you know, that seems like an oxymoron. Um, okay. Saying jazz in school in the, in the same sentence. That's a, <laughs> it's another conversation. Um, yeah. But no, it was, it was a really good valuable time. Um, but when I heard this, I was just like, Oh my God. I mean, I was familiar with a good amount of Tony's playing at that point, but for some reason I just hadn't really like listened to this whole record all the way through. And man, it just blew me away. I mean, 19 years old, playing uh, the, the way that he played on, on this concert. And at this point in his career is just, just mind blowing. I mean, he has, he has his own language. I mean, clearly studied the greats before him, but already developed his own language. I mean, a whole rhythmic concept to his own. Him and Herbie on this recording are really starting. I mean, there's both the young guns in the band. They're really communicating with their comping tony's soloing is just really lyrical compositional there's dynamics it's lyrical there's really cool awesome like linear ideas that um and his enemy is right i mean I, I could talk about every single limb of his for you know the entirety of this podcast but um, um i think the solo is awesome i liked it because the solo is kind of in the top half of the tune it's just like there's like let's just get give tony some time it's mm -hmm. cool it kind of kind of is in time for some of it and then he kind of drops out of time i always enjoyed that about um you know a handful of, of tony's solos i mean he's got a lot that are over the form he's got a lot that are over vamps he's got some that are out of time but my favorite are kind of the ones where he just does his thing and the air the air kind of gets released and he takes his time and then he always you know a lot of times brings it back in you know bop, 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 and then right in and ron Carter just knows, I mean, the whole band knows exactly where he is. The interplay with Herbie on this is amazing. The tune evolves. It goes to different places. I mean, it's just, it's Tony's playing in this is just really kind of the most exceptional and, and my favorite examples of jazz drumming. And when I heard it in college, it just, it, it changed. It was like a sea change for me. It's like, this is how I am going to try and sound. This is it. This is incredible. This whole record is just some of the best jazz drumming that's ever been recorded and ever will be recorded.
drums, the drum tone on this is just the best. Yeah. And to think just a couple of years later, Miles is going to change the entire course of jazz and music, you know? Crazy. Such an innovator. So, number four, the album is Siamese Twins. The release year is 1999. The artist is Frank Glover and Cloud Sifferlin. Mm-hmm. All yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't trust my, even though it's kind of hooked on phonics the way it's spelled, but I don't trust myself sometimes. So, yeah. And the song choice is Confirmation, and you sent me an MP3 of this. And, mm-hmm. yeah, there's no drummer on this one. So, uh, talk a little bit about it, and then we will go into it. Yeah. Yeah. So, this this record is is always something that i i try to include i mean it's really just one of my favorite records if you know people do that desert island thing or whatever um this this record goes with me just everywhere um and it's really it's really influential and i'm not trying to be like clever or coy by by having something without a drummer but the, the fact is is this this record shaped me in a big way because i i got the this the enormous the pleasure of of playing in a band with these guys when I was in college, I um, they're both musicians in Indianapolis, um, jazz musicians in Indianapolis. And starting my sophomore year, I started to go up and and sub for another drummer, and then eventually became their regular drummer at a jazz club called the Jazz Kitchen in Indianapolis. And I got to play with Frank and Claude for three, four, four years, and before Claude passed, and they would play duo all over town, but mostly at this jazz club called the Chatterbox. And I had seen them play before I got asked to, Frank asked me to come and play in their band. And watching them play duo was just, to me, the one of the mo- most prime examples of what music is about. And they developed their own language. They've been playing together for, you know, 25 years. Uh, they developed their their own language. They they had these beautiful conversations musically as as a duo, just playing um, on this record. Frank's playing clarinet, um, but he plays um, tenor and soprano as well. Um, but his clarinet playing is just unreal. And Claude, each of them have such a unique voice, but they come together and they have a voice together too. And that's why I think you know maybe the name Siamese Twins uh, um, might be wrong about that. But watching them play duo is just still, I mean, I would give anything for it. It really would be if I could like bring um, some something back and, and sit and watch a concert, watching these guys play and then later having the opportunity uh, to somehow play with them for years was just incredible. It just gave, it 
they had this this ability of they had this elastic time too, where their time sense you'd always you'd be listening to the form, and you'd just be like, oh my god, wait, are are they not together? But they their phrase points were perfect, their harmonic language, their their lyrical interplay, and also their time was elastic. And so one of the challenges, and I put that in quotes because it wasn't a challenge; it was very advanced, and I had to to figure it out like on the gig, never talked to these guys about it either. I just come in and I just played and I had to figure it out. And I, my ears really got together and a lot of other things. And I don't even think they got together. I think I, to me, I was hanging on for dear life because these guys are two of the best musicians that I've ever, you know, played with, but their sense of time really was amazing. And it gave me this, it was just elastic. They always knew where everything was and this record, not having drums, really influenced me because I I had to listen to it a lot and kind of figure out what the drums were doing. And it just got my ears together as a drummer to not be so metronomic in this case, but just be a, a drummer that had such confident time and had co- time within a group. And this time concept not being this literal thing of just on, on the grid, which music is very much in that in that realm now. And listening to them converse and have their own language is just it, it it would influence anybody on any instrument but particularly drums because it's not there almost if that makes sense the absence of drums almost just gave me like it made me think about ideas it made me think about time differently um and just spiritually listening to them play and the lessons i learned from playing with them playing drums with them in their in their quartet was uh was just really one of the, the greatest musical things in my life so yeah although there's no drums here it, it shaped my drumming. Their playing shaped my drumming so much. All right. Well, here's confirmation. And you told me a certain area that of the song that kind of showcases their, their back and forth in a, in a great way. So here we go. When you have that kind of relationship with that's a very intimate relationship. I mean, you're alive. Exactly. Each other. Yeah, and that's and that's really what I think. There's a lot of lessons you can take away from that, but I think that you just hit the nail on the head. I mean, that's it. Really taught me about the the depth of the music relationships that you can have, and then tr- trying to articulate those in our in our like Western music terms, knowing. Um, where our where, where the phrases are, knowing the harmonic language, melody, like listening to each other, and it just gave me it just kind of blew my mind at the time. And 
um, having those kind of, knowing that those kind of relationships exist and being able to witness it, um, being a part of it, but also witnessing it. Um, and that record is just, is incredible. I'm not sure sometimes it pops up as being available and other times it doesn't, but if, um, anybody, I would recommend checking it out. Uh, Claude has a solo track on there, uh, solo piano, all the things you are, that is, is just one of the best, um, solo piano versions of that song ever ever recorded in my opinion but yeah brilliant record awesome one of my favorites do you still just play along to it is that just to kind of mess around man i i i don't i i i've tried it back in back in the day i i i did it when i think i was trying to like oh man i'm, I'm gonna come back this next week and um but i haven't done it i haven't done it recently it's um it, it's it's weird not to sound corny but i just it's a very it's like a really emotional uh record for me to like even listen to um but um that is a good idea and i should because it it's just i think i get i would get really distracted i just listen to it and just make that face and just be like, oh and drop my sticks or something <laughs> you said cloud passed away is is frank still playing frank is still playing um i i i haven't talked to him for a little bit my might may, may have been a year or two since i've seen him but i think he's, he's still in indiana um playing and um yeah i think he's still playing at the chatterbox which if anybody's going through indianapolis on tour or or not on tour or whatever i i, I love that club it's just it's like a, a dive bar that has jazz seven nights a week and i played there every every wednesday night that i played at the jazz kitchen every monday with frank and claude and every tuesday i played in a big band at the jazz kitchen so I was I was I was gigging a lot in Indianapolis, and that, yeah, it was a really really awesome time. But, but Frank will still be there from time to time, and he's really one of the greatest living clarinetists and jazz saxophonists. But not too many people know his name. Okay, so, well, hopefully this will help. So, yeah. All right. Well, number five, the album is Donuts. The release here is two thousand six. The artist is Jay Dilla. Song choice is Lightworks, and mm -hmm. the drummer is it's just samples. And it's Jay yeah. Dilla being Jay Dilla. So yeah. uh, take it away and then we'll listen to a little bit. Yeah. Um, I also heard this one like right around when it came out and I was in college. Somebody was like, man, check, check this out. And it, you know, another one of these epiphany light bulb moments, or I'm not even sure if it was really a light bulb. I think it was just like the light bulb might have burst or something. I just, I hadn't heard production or, um this rhythmic concept before and this it's almost a, a nice pacing with coming from what i was talking about on the siamese twins record because i just you know it's just it's dilla time it's its own unique thing which i think there's actually a book that i've read a, a couple pages out of because friends have shared it with me that people have analyzed what's happening here what what dilla did and what he accomplished and what's so cool about it is um I mean, it's it's innovative hip hop production, but also I think the, the the rhythmic and time feel. I mean, there's some cool harmonic stuff, cool production, cool textures, all kinds of things. But really, as a drummer, it was just like, whoa, okay, this is cool. And I remember hearing it right around the time that a lot of drummers like Chris Dave were physically putting this in into action. And now it's you know it's a very I, I would venture to say it's a it's a genre in and of itself where there are drummers that are, you know doing this um it's almost it's kind of hard to articulate but there's multiple time fields at once and there's not you know you've got there's a beautiful diagram in this book dilla time that dan charnas 
there's a book called Dilla Time, and he has this this image of saying straight time, and it's just like a straight grid, grid like playing along to drum machines, 80s drum machines, straight time. Then you got swing time, like a Count Basie tune or whatever. And then Dilla Time is just like, it's like call, kind of all these times at once, but it still grooves so hard and it does something to you. And hearing how he approached his production really was awesome because it helped me. It just like made me approach. I mean, I don't consider myself a drummer that specializes in that kind of drumming, but it's something that I, I identify with. And I feel like it influenced my playing because it above all else, like I, I, you know, every drummer has like a beating heart and has swing to them. Like no matter we like, and every musician has it. And um, I think it's one of the things that is just most special about playing music and especially a, a, an instrument that, you know, is, is highly rhythmic and hearing somebody kind of blow the, the whole paradigm has shifted now um, because of the kind of production that, that Dilla came up with. It just made me think about drums differently. I was like, oh man, wait, you mean the, the snare drum and the bass drum? Like talking about groove drumming, especially like, oh, you mean they don't have to come at the same time? Like, you mean that there's this whole, now everything can kind of, is kind of floating in space, but you you are going to place it in a certain way that is going to make it feel this way. It, it's really just brilliant. And and then hearing more about this record, that this, this is the last record that he made, and he did it basically in the hospital as he was as he was dying. And hearing it around, I think it was probably around maybe two thousand six, two thousand seven. I'm in I'm in school, and I'm you know listening to a lot of jazz at the time, and then hearing, but also into to all kinds of music, hip hop including. Hearing this, I was just like, whoa, okay. Now now there's a whole new world to to look at. It's like discovering a new you know solar system, and just being like whoa what's out here so really although there's not a drummer on it it's just like rhythmically really awesome and really before this and one of the other records that i piled on in the honorable mentions it was like i didn't listen to a ton of electronic music and then this is one of the records i was like okay people are doing genius things and breaking boundaries and rhythmically making things that are amazing in electronic and sampled music that are new that are also organic and it just kind of it just opened up the entire um, new realm for me and introduced this time feel a and then also new production techniques and um yeah just just an awesome record and it's so cool all the tracks are short and they're just little just little little short stories and lightworks has kind of always been my favorite it's just vibey and cool and the beat has got that dilla thing it's awesome Hell yeah. Well, here's here's Lightworks. This is Bendix, the Tomorrow People. What is the magic that makes one's eyes sparkle and gleam, light up the skies? The name of the game is Lightworks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. 
So I do want to sneak in because you have very specific honorable mentions. So I do want to sneak these in. Sure, and sure. I will ask, can you pronounce the yeah. person who this is? I mean, I, I might be even butchering his name, but Nobukatsu Takemura. And the song is Kepler. So mm-hmm. here we go. Obviously, there's a lot of cool things about that, but why do you yeah. choose this? Um, this is, and again, maybe this is a, a good following the the, the donuts to the Dillo record. No, not a drummer on here, electronic musician from Japan. I heard this around around the same time that I heard Donuts for the first time, and I mean, any of the like the many drummers that that you know probably will be listening to this. I mean, that would be really fun to play drums too. Yeah. <laughs> so many cool layers. I mean, again, was kind of like a little bit not exposed to electronic music coming into at that point in my life, like 19, 20, 21 years old, heard this record. And I was like, Oh, this is awesome. Really got into kind of minimalism, John Cage, Steve Reich and, uh, and others. And I really dug the minimalism of this, the composition, but also like the rhythmic stuff that's happening. I mean, there's all these rhythmic layers and then you can hear that kind of, I still don't really know how um, Takimura does it, but the kind of almost sounds like a CD skipping. He does a lot of cool stuff on that record where the rhythmic components of that are really awesome. And it's just really as a drummer, having listening to this was just like okay cool this is this is giving me ideas like there's no drums like what would i play on this to sound cool and also just the idea that like 
we spend a lot of our time as drummers thinking about how the how the snare drum sounds and what the ideal bass drum tone is for for this record. Oh, is it is it a twenty inch or a twenty two inch, or do you go bigger than a twenty four? What's the depth? And it's like you hear stuff like this, and it's like, oh wow, like anything can be rhythmic, you know? <laughs> like, and so this record kind of gave me that. You know, you go you go from the, the Dilla record where you're sampling instruments, you know, r- records from eighties, seventies, sixties, whatever. And he's sampling it, which is a skill in and of itself. But then you have this, where it's electronically generated music. It's also sam- samples in there too, but he's using it using different sounds as maybe the kick drum or as the snare drum, or maybe that's none of that's happening, and it's just a rhythm. And it kind of reminded me that it's like at the end of the day, are we drum set players or are we musicians that play a rhythmic instrument? You know, and this record really kind of. Um, helped me uh, appreciate and and opened up the whole electronic music realm and and called into this question that I'm still trying to figure out in in making my own music how does the drum set fit in to the music that I want to make like how can I can I approach it differently can I somehow abandon all these like legends of like like Clyde Stubblefield the, the Tony Williams all these um Jim Keltner Brian Blade like all, all these drummers that that I love Ringo and then can I can I take all that stuff, but then approach it differently in a 2023 <laughs> context. And this record just, I mean, it, it sounds beautiful. It's really cool. Compositionally, it's awesome. But rhythmically, it, it actually gave me a ton of ideas. And, um, you know, he did it all, uh, as far as I understand, all in his apartment in Japan. So as like kind of another fellow, you know, sort of bedroom producer and electronic musician that's trying to figure it out, This, yeah, it's just really cool music <laughs> hell yeah. yeah no that was awesome insight <laughs> yeah uh, well then to go back let's go mm-hmm. to uh mr al jackson jr and it's uh, al green's let's stay together from 1972 mm-hmm. so and uh the song is so you're leaving by al green so let's uh let's play a little bit of that Jackson is just Mr. Taste. I, I couldn't like, and uh, you know, going back to the very first question that you posed, it was just like, I mean, yeah, this this, this is, it's hard to choose five. It's a really good um, exercise. It's such a cool idea. But I was just like, how can I, I got to get Al Jackson in there. And then it started to snowball. And I was like, well, I got to get him and him and him and her and what, but I think, you know, this is one of his later contributions. I mean, he, had, he you know, he played, 
on pivotal hits with Sam and Dave and, you know, was a, a Stax drummer. Um, and actually Howard Grimes played on this record too. And I'm not, I'm pretty sure this is Al Jackson, but maybe somebody out there can, I, I have the record, but I, it, it doesn't, it doesn't stay. So I don't know, you know, Al, Al Jackson just was the epitome of like a drummer that knew like restraint played to the song, such a, a deep pocket and backbeat as, as you can hear. And it just, it just shaped me a lot because this is, this is a lot of like tunes that Al Jackson had played on. And this record in particular is a lot of stuff that I grew up listening to through my dad playing a lot of old R and B and soul records, you know, and this record is just, is really kind of sums it up for me. Um, Al, Al Jackson's playing because I mean, it's a, it's a really cool record. The drums are recorded. Awesome. Cause a lot of the earlier stuff, I think it was just one mic. So like, you know, the mix, you're kind of like, I mean, it's, it sounds awesome, but there's there's more clarity because, you know, now we're in 1972, uh, the recording technology has changed a bit. Um, but he's just, he came out of a jazz world. I think his dad ran a big band. So he was, he was kind of like started as a jazz drummer and then just became such a tasteful session groove drummer that was just like, people had to have him on the track because he just knew exactly how to make it, how to unlock the song and be like a quote unquote, point guard where he wasn't going to go up and do like a crazy put up 50 points in a, in a game and do all this like crazy stuff. But he, he allowed the, the song to come through. He allowed the bass, play, like every element he was the point guard, you know, and he, he made the songs really come together and connect um, on so many stacks tunes and other tunes and, and hit songs. And I just like, I could not not include him because I feel like coming from a jazz background um, and then doing a lot in my professional work now, still some jazz, but a lot of non-jazz, like looking for that restraint and playing to the song and just unlocking it for everybody, making the singer feel good, bass player feel good, making a groove, having good tone, all that stuff. He's just, he's just the best at it. So. All right. Well, I know that you are uh, you're out of the country and probably uh, need to pack to get back home. So I will let you go. But I do want to give you a little bit of a chance to do some self-promotion. So I know you I mean, you do some musical directing. You're a very busy guy recording, touring. What does 2023 look like if people want to have you help them out with their show? I mean, just this is the floor is yours. (laughs) 2023, fortunately is is looking really busy um i'm currently this is my seventh year playing drums for the artist l king who's um uh those of you not familiar like pop rock soul country um artist um so so, yeah and she's great man i mean the first the first gig i played with her i i i met her a few hours before the gig actually in madison wisconsin weirdly Mm -hmm. all these things come together met her on the, on the tour bus about three hours before the gig. And she's like, Hey, thanks for playing with us. Hadn't rehearsed any of the tunes. Awesome. What always has drawn me to her and still um, does, you know, every night is that she's got an awesome soulful voice and she's just a classic, awesome singer. Um, So I'm really lucky to be doing a whole year of touring in 2023. Got a tour starting mid February uh, going through March and we've got stuff sprinkled around throughout the whole year. So I'll be doing that most of the time, but you know, I still, I put out my first record this last year. That's not really sure what it sounds like, but it's, yeah, I I play some (laughs) drums on it, but it's also got some uh, kind of sound scapey stuff or synths, whatever 
And I hope to do a show of that, but I also recorded a, another EP just about a month ago and I'm probably going to move to to mixing and hopefully put that out in 2023. But yeah, I also, I do some production. I do some writing, occasionally do some MDing. I kind of hopped on and helped out on this uh, K-Flay tour last year and been using Ableton for a long time. So, you know, I, I, do the, do the session drumming thing, do the touring drumming thing and MD produce trying to do all my, you know, like, like all of us, we are trying to do a lot of things. We're not trying to, we do, we do a lot of things. We need to. Um, yeah. We need to. It's um, I think we all, it, everything influences one another and it, and it helps you as a, as a drummer to do these things, but it also sometimes is out of necessity, but it'll be a, a lot of, a lot of touring and a, and a fair amount of sessions, but yeah, busy year with L this year. So, um, we'll be on, um, some TV shows later in January. I don't know if they're announced yet or anything, but, um, but you know, late night show and a morning show, those of you those, that watch those things, um, we'll be on there playing some, some fun, country soul rock tunes and um yeah i'll be drumming trying to bring the spirit of all these <laughs> drummers and records alive uh, for better or for worse well dave this was awesome man such good insight um it doesn't uh, surprise me at all with with the nuances in your playing that you are so all over the place with things that have influenced you so thank you so much for taking the time and uh, i'll let you get back to your vacation man and safe travels thanks man thanks for having me on And that's the show. If you're listening on a platform that allows ratings and reviews, do that. It helps more people find the show, so it'll get bigger and better, and hopefully I'll have a chance to sell out one day. But you'll be an OG listener that can brag to all your friends. Anyways, why don't you go and check us out at BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on all the socials. Just search for Big Fat Snare Drum and you will find us. The show is edited in part using Isotope RX Audio Editor. It's amazing, so go check that out at Isotope.com. And thanks again to Gunnar Olsen for the theme music. Bye.